Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Keith and I have been talking about the war in Ukraine and how that's been forcing me as someone who's committed to Christian nonviolence, it's been forcing me to reflect on my position. It's not a position, by the way, that Keith shares with me. He thinks I'm crazy and out for lunch on this particular issue. Last episode, when we kind of laid out some of what the Bible has to say about it, it was pretty spicy. It was kind of fun. I thought I had a blast. Because we were both challenging each other and trying to say, hey, are you sure that's what the Bible is saying here? We didn't get into the practical stuff. That's still to come in this episode of how you'd handle difficult situations. We're going to end up asking each other tough questions that each of our positions has. I prefer the term roasting. (laughs) Roasting. Embarrassing, humiliating. (laughs) I feel like a kid who crammed for a test and now he showed up at school and he's hoping he can remember everything that he crammed for. Because I have all this stuffed in my head, but I don't know if it's going to come out right. So I'm afraid that I'm going to be roasted. So if you have not listened to our previous episode, we are assuming you have. And in our previous episode, we went through what the Bible says. If you go through this and you're like, you didn't talk about the Bible much, it's because we already did. And I think it was really interesting. I actually learned a lot talking to you in the process. I hope you felt the same way. I think you'll think it was a fun episode. Let's hop in right now, though. We need to do steel man arguments. So these are the best case arguments for two different positions, Christian nonviolence in my case and just war in your case. And because Christian nonviolence is probably the case most people haven't heard, we will start there and then move to you with just war. Sound good? Yeah, so do I get to interrupt and ask questions yeah. as you go? So here's the spirit of- What are of, the ground rules? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's good. Here's the spirit of this section. I will lay out my argument. Mm-hmm. You get to ask clarifying questions. Okay. These aren't gotcha questions because you have your moment for the gotcha questions later on, right? This is, I'm trying to understand, or I'm trying to help the listener understand, because I do think both of us have already sought to understand each other's positions. You've read books on nonviolence. I've Mm -hmm. read books on just war. We aren't coming at this as people who've only considered our own position. Oh, not at all. So we're trying to clarify. Does that sound good? Yeah. So you go and I'm going to sit back and listen. Let's talk about Christian nonviolence. Now, I have already said on previous episodes that I don't like the term pacifism. And that's because people, when they hear the word pacifism, often think passive. And so what they gather is that if you hold this position, you are passive towards evil. You will not resist evil in any fashion. And you and I both know that's not my personality. It's not something I would ever do. And so I like nonviolence because it actually articulates what I'm arguing for. One of the ways I resist evil actively, not passively, is by committing myself to nonviolence. 
So now my goal is to explain that. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I think that the terms that we use um, shape the argument. And you're clearly choosing nonviolence for a reason. Uh, and I think you're smart to do so. If I held your position, that's exactly what I would do too. Uh, so maybe you could help us understand what violence is. Yeah, I, I think it's a key question. And again, you and I are probably going to define this differently, okay? So for some people, violence is just any use of force. And I strongly disagree with that. Here's a case study. Let's take a doctor and a mugger. Both are going to try to cut you. One is using violence, the mugger. One is trying to heal you, <laughs> the doctor. Or let's take another one. There's an old lady who's walking across the street and a bus is flying towards her. And so I run out into the street and I tackle her. And in the process, I break her hip, but she doesn't get hit by the bus. Was that violence on my part? Well, no, it was use of force. So what makes for violence? I'm taking this definition from Preston Sprinkle. He says, it's a physical act that is intended, emphasis under intended, your goal is to destroy or injure a victim, okay? So it's a physical act where your intention is to destroy or injure your victim. Now, here's the deal. This means that even when it comes to resisting the intruder coming inside of your house, there are ways in which you could still use physical resistance. If your goal is not to destroy the person, to harm the person, you can imagine a way that you could push someone even tackle someone. What about shoot him in the leg? Again, this is, I don't know. That's just an honest question. No, right? I, I'm are with you. Are you saying all the way up to death or are you saying something short of death? Again, I know I'm doing a steel man, so I shouldn't do this, but if I want to be honest, where I, <laughs> one of the places I see the most gray area, it's right here. I think that nonviolence 100% precludes any fatality, any action you would do that would kill someone, that would permanently end someone's life. Your goal was to kill them. Right? Your goal was to kill them. Your goal was to kill them, right? Because I could tackle that woman trying to save her from and the bus kill and kill her. her by accident, right? I wouldn't call that violence. So let's say an intruder breaks into your house. You brought it up, not mm -hmm. me. And you have a gun and your goal is to shoot them in the leg, but you instead end up killing them. Yeah. So I think by my definition, there could be a case to be made that that was not an act of violence. My goal was to stop you and to resist you. Now, again, guns are challenging because they have a tendency to kill. Even if you shoot people in the wrong places, people can bleed out. So there's a lot to be wrestled with here. If you're asking me my personal position, I would say, yeah, that probably still is an act of violence because I just don't know how you intend to shoot a gun without the intention on some level to kill. Now, I realize people can argue with me. You're my kind of pacifist. You got guns, you're shooting people in the leg. Well, okay, so, you're so, like training your shot, you know, <laughs> so you could be really good. I hope, yeah. Well, no. You know, like you can shoot the gun out of their well, hand. And I should something. say this. My position does not come out of my personal disposition. Some people you're like to say, person? some people like to say I'm a lover, not a fighter. I know myself. I'm a fighter, not a lover. Oh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Oh, sure. okay. <laughs> so Jesus's calls to nonviolence, and maybe this is why I take my position in part, they're really challenging to me because they call me to resist myself in a profound way. Here's the deal. I love guns. So there was a guy on Twitter. His name's, uh, I think, Dan You Coleman. love guns? I do. I love shooting guns. I sincerely enjoy them. I like handguns. I like shotguns. I like rifles. I saw you saying it to a guy on Twitter, and I thought you were joking. Oh, I'm not joking. I'd like to get some shotguns. I've never really had a big interest in handguns. But this guy asked me, like, how does your nonviolence, how does that play out in your life? And I told him, I go, well, I actually really enjoy guns. And anytime I get a chance to go out and shoot, I will go shoot. I love shooting. I go, I love guns, but I won't own one. Why? Because if I had a gun in my house and an intruder came in and tried to attack my wife, I don't think I could stop myself. I am just being Nor honest. should you. Well, yeah, and you say nor should you, that's fine. I just don't think I could stop myself from killing him. And because of my position, I've had to make the decision I can't have a gun in the house because I don't think I'd have the self-control not to use it in the moment. The vast majority of people who are listening to this- Have lost me. Well, <laughs> you lost them right there. At the beginning of your steel man, you just told them that if someone broke into your house and was going to attack your <laughs> wife, that you- 
Oh, I wouldn't have a gun them. because you're afraid you I would might kill them. Kill them yeah. In which everyone out there is cheering for you and going, yeah. And then they realize you said you don't want to do that. And, okay. So I think you got to get back to your steel. Let's man. go see. Let's, let's and, go back. And, and I'll, and, and this I, is hold on, steel. hold on. I, I, I'm expecting that you will ask me that question because I have a lot of responses. So saying I won't kill someone is very, very different than saying I will not resist that person. So let's hop in to the actual steel man argument here. Here's the key question. Can Christians in any environment or circumstance participate in violence? So for example, can a Christian who's being attacked, can he use violence? In other words, he's intending to harm or destroy someone else. Can he or she use violence to protect himself? Or the exact same way we could say in the defense of a loved one or a neighbor. Can a Christian use violence, the intent to destroy or harm someone else in order to protect that person? Or there's a third layer, policing. Is a Christian who's working for the state allowed to use force, allowed to use violence, the intention of destroying someone else to defend the just order of society? Or we can go even further, can a Christian join the military whose goal is exclusively to kill others if you're actually a combatant, right? So we're talking about combat. There's lots of military roles where you don't have to do any violence and that's something we'll come back to later. But, 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 but the question is, could a Christian be active in a combatant role where his goal is to kill someone. These are the questions at the heart of Christian nonviolence. At what point is a Christian justified in using violent force with the intention to destroy someone else? You're saying that people could say, hey, I wouldn't defend myself, but I would defend others. Or I wouldn't defend myself or others unless I was an officer sanctioned by the state and given a badge. Yeah. Then I could do it. But I'm, the one you're most against, if I understand the way you laid it self-defense. out. Self-defense. You're most against self-defense? Yep. Not the military whose goal is to go out and kill if others? I, if I were to rank these in terms of like how certain I am, I'm certain about self-defense. That you should not use violence to yes, defend I'm yourself. I'm certain you should not use violence okay. to defend yourself. I think that's number one uh-huh. that I'm certain about. I think number two is probably military violence. Okay but it's really, really close for me with defending your neighbor, loved ones. The one I'm least sure about is policing. It seems like there could be a case for Christians being in a police force and using violent force. And we'll get into that. If you listened to the last episode, I'm not shocking you. We kind of got into that there. But these are all different things that we have to wrestle with. And again, I'm saying not using violence. Back to the intruder at the home. There are lots of other ways to resist. And there's actually a strong case to be made that by pulling out your gun, you might actually lead to the thing that you don't want to have happen. So we'll get into that whenever we go there. But I'm not saying no other forms of resistance. I'm saying there's lots of other forms of resistance. The only thing I won't do is violence, which is intending to destroy someone. So where do I get this from? Well, again, I would invite you to go look back at the episode that we just did about the Bible. Quick overview. Israel's history. I think that Israel's history has a trajectory towards nonviolence. Israel warfare was incredibly, incredibly limited, much more so than other ancient nations. In Matthew 19, Jesus talks about laws that existed in the Old Testament, which God allowed the Israelites to do some things as an accommodation for their sinfulness. So an example, this is divorce. Jesus says, look, God allowed you to get these kind of no-fault divorce policy where a man could divorce a woman for anything. He allowed that because of the hardness of your heart, but that wasn't his intention. And he says, now in the kingdom, we're not gonna have a no-fault divorce policy anymore. We're gonna live closer to God's original intent in the garden, which was Adam and Eve in a lifelong covenantal relationship. And now I would say we see a similar thing. I would argue that Israel's warfare policy was in some senses an accommodation to the world that they were living in and that the trajectory in the Old Testament prophets is towards nonviolence. You will beat your swords into plowshares. That is the goal. That's what happens when God's kingdom comes to earth in the King and in the Messiah. I think there's an honest question just to clarify. Yeah. So when you say there's trajectory in the Old Testament toward nonviolence, are you saying in teaching or in practice that as you go from Genesis to, you know, the end of the Old Testament, that they got less violent? 
Or are you saying the teaching started talking about a time of coming peace? Well, I would argue that in Genesis 1 to 11, the problem that is most significantly repeated and dealt with with humanity before God ever calls Abraham is violence. It's the problem with Cain and Abel. It's the problem that leads to the flood. And so I would say that if our comparison point is the Tower of Babel and all the violence that happened before the flood, and then we look at the kind of society God tries to build in Israel as compared to the societies around it, which were characterized by that kind of violence, you could say, yes, the trajectory is away. When you compare it to other societies, it's towards less and less violence in practice. And I would say in prophetic teaching that the prophets are looking forward to a day to come when God's kingdom comes to earth. Now, of course, we live in the overlap of the ages. It's an already, but not yet. God's kingdom is here, and yet it's not here yet. And I would argue that part of his kingdom being here, according to Jesus's explicit teachings in the New Testament, is nonviolence. That one thing that has come into the present, so it's an already, it's not a not yet thing, is that people who are part of God's kingdom will practice nonviolence. And yet there's also a not yet. The not yet has not to do with us, members of the kingdom. It's the secular world. The not yet is that in the secular world, the nations are still raging. The nations are still warring. The nations are still enacting violence. But inside of God's kingdom, the standard is nonviolence. And I'm pulling this from the explicit teachings of Jesus. He says that we should not resist evil, that we should bless those who persecute us, and explicitly uses examples of violence and says, if someone does violence against you, don't resist them. Let them keep going. He uses examples of the cross. And I think that's the other place I would go. Just say that, look, when we look at Jesus and how he defeated evil, right? Because you said, hey, our goal is to develop a just and ordered society. Well, I would say Jesus is at the core of developing a just and ordered society. There is no just ordered society without Jesus. And when we look at Jesus's example of how he established a just and ordered society, how he went about transforming the world, we know how he did it. He died. He laid down his life. He refused to resist. Though he said he could, he refused to resist. And the cross, what he did, isn't just something that he did. It's something that he and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter all lay out as an example for how Christians should resist evil in their own world. In other words, what I hear a lot of people who are pro-violence doing is something like this. Pro-violence. Well, if I, this is the steel man, right? Okay. Pro-violence. <laughs> I'm pro-violence. People who are— what, what? <laughs> Who believe that there is an appropriate I need a use. short version. <laughs> just, Mine's Christian nonviolence. You got three words. <laughs> Just call it pro-violence. I'm enjoying it. Okay, let's call it pro-just war and self-defense. Is that fair? Okay. Sure. All right, pro-just war and self-defense. Here's one of the things that irritates me, is it seems to me that what they end up saying is, yes, I know that nonviolence worked for Jesus in the ultimate battle against evil, and that was really cute. But in my life, <laughs> that could never possibly work. Mm. How, could that, how could that make sense for me? How could that make sense in my self-defense? How could that make sense in how I resist evil if evil comes into my household? How could that make sense in how our government resists evil? How could that make sense if I was a police officer and I wanted to resist? It's cute for Jesus. And yeah, it worked for Jesus. But for me, no way. And the problem is I can point to dozens of places in the New Testament which say, yes, that is for you. <laughs> Live out the cross in your life. So in other words, my point here is my view is in deep alignment with the explicit teachings of the New Testament in terms of how people should act. You cannot find a single passage in the New Testament. This is a fact. You cannot find a single passage in the New Testament which says that Christians are allowed to use violence. I'm not saying that there aren't passages that you could kind of say, well, if this means this and this means that, then you could go. So like Romans 13 says, hey, God gives the sword to Rome. So someone could say, well, if there's Christians who are in Rome, then maybe what Paul is saying in this letter to Rome is that they're allowed to use the sword. That's great. I'm acknowledging that, but I'm saying there's no explicit passage that says in a case of self-defense, you have this in the Old Testament, in the case of self-defense, in the case of defending your neighbor, in the case of you being a Roman official, none of them say explicitly 
that you can use violence. You have to wrestle with that simple fact. This is your steel man. You're looking at me like you want me to say well, something. Well, you got a look on your face. Well, sure. I have lots of things that I would like to say, but I'm not going to interrupt your steel man. I'm going to listen to it. Okay, let's keep going. And make a mental note for it. Let's keep going. Acts, the apostles, the disciples, again, they epitomize the nonviolent ethic. Does Paul resist violently when his rights are infringed upon? No, he doesn't. Does Peter do it? No, he doesn't. Does Stephen do it? No, he doesn't. Do people do it? Even when they did have a critical enough mass that they could have rioted and saved Stephen and gotten him free. No, they never do it. And this would not be them, by the way, trying to bring God's kingdom by force. This would be self-defense. That's all it would be by our definition, right? Because you would say the exact same- It would be self-defense for Stephen. It would be- neighbor defense for, for the, the others, others right? Exactly. I'm just clarifying. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I right. agree. And it could even be state-sanctioned policing if you're a Roman centurion and you're trying to stop this mob of people from stoning a dude, right? But that does not happen. The Roman centurions who were Christians in Jerusalem don't stop it. The Christians don't stop it. They entirely embody an ethic of nonviolence. So let me draw my biblical conclusions. How did Jesus, Peter, Paul, and the apostles and the first disciples respond to personal violence and state-sanctioned violence? The answer is unequivocal, nonviolence. It's unequivocal. There is no example of a disciple or apostle using violence to protect themselves, protect others. There's none, no explicit. That's a true statement. Oh, I just wanna make sure we're all there. That's a true statement. <laughs> I, I, yes. There is not, and I'll get to this in my questions, there is no place in the New Testament or Old Testament that approximates anything close to just war. The principles of just war are very difficult to draw out of the Old Testament. Now, I'm not gonna make that case here, but we'll do it when we get into our questions because I'll ask that. And again, the trajectory of scripture, the trajectory of the biblical story is ultimately towards nonviolence. That's where the story ends. And so, because I believe that God's people are God's kingdom on earth as in heaven, and we are meant to be a foretaste of that heavenly reality in the present, we should live by the nonviolent ethic, which will be true one day in the resurrection. And Jesus explicitly taught us to do this in the Sermon on the Mount, the most central teachings that he had. So that's my biblical case. Any questions about that that you think no, I need to clarify? Well, no, I think you- You have tons of questions, I know. I think you've done a very good job of showing that the Bible teaches that Christians- should not uh, respond to personal insult or personal attack with violence. Their personal ethics should be one of seeking harmony, seeking the well-being of their enemy, praying for those who persecute them. Yes. I haven't you, done anything for the state. You and I don't disagree right. at all and, and again, about that. Let me level up personal ethic because it's a kingdom ethic. This is about how God's people act. It's not just about how I act. Now, I realize I'm an individual in that kingdom, but this is about how God's people act as they live in the world. It's how the church acts. Exactly. It's, it's not how the state acts. It's not how the state acts, but it's how the church and those who are loyal to Christ should act in their personal lives. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Okay, I'm going to move through this next one quickly because I spent too long in the last one. But to me, the Bible's the most important part, so I have no problem doing that. The next case for Christian nonviolence is the example of the early church. Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we know from early church history that there were lots of debates about theological and ethical topics inside of the early church, debates about the mode of baptism, debates about the deity of Christ and the Trinity. There are no, that we know of, significant debates over violence until the Constantinian era. There aren't people arguing, can we use violence? Should we use violence? There's none that we have recorded until we have a Roman emperor who becomes a Christian. I could go through here and pull quote after quote from the church fathers which say again and again that Christians, in many cases, it says shouldn't be soldiers. <laughs> in other cases, it says if they are soldiers, they should never use violence. 
But there are countless teachings that come out of the early church that make it clear that the normative practice within the early church was nonviolence. Now, the obvious response to this is the simple fact that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt there were Christians who were Roman soldiers. What in the world do you do with that? My response to that point is simply to say this. In our church, I'm not trying to be mean. In our church, there are a lot of people with unbiblical divorces. I know that. I don't love it. I'm not okay with it. And yet, on the other side, I know that people are in process. And the New Testament is okay with process. And so is it possible that there were people who were converted to Jesus who stayed in the Roman military and in some cases actively used violent force despite that being against the teachings of the church, which people like Basil, who's even after Constantine says, we're gonna kick you out of communion for three years <laughs> if you use violence. Is it possible that you have people who aren't living in line with their faith? Yeah, absolutely. And that's how they would have been viewed. My only other thought about soldiers is I've got quotes in here. I'm not going to read them. There are countless scholars. And by the way, several of these scholars are pro-just war scholars. So these aren't people defending nonviolence. They're not from my camp who have made the point that a Roman soldier could live an entire life without ever being on a military campaign. And that in many cases, they could live an entire life without using the kind of violence that I've defined as violence. It all depended on where they were stationed, right? The closer exactly. they were stationed to Rome, the less mm -hmm. likely they would use it if they were out on the front line and the frontier, they were probably in a lot of battles. Yeah. And so what I would say is that it's also quite possible that you had Christian soldiers who were converts, who weren't on the front lines of battles, who were police officers, who weren't using violence in their policing activities. And I would say that they could consistently, as Christians in those instances, refuse to go to war. So if emperor tries to send me off to war, I'm out. I'm done. Whatever the consequences be, I leave. Or if my commander tries to make me use violence in my policing, I won't do it. I refuse whatever the consequences are. In my mind, it is not irrational or outlandish or ridiculous to imagine that that also might have been what was happening with these Roman soldiers, including, by the way, the soldiers who were stationed in Caesarea that Peter talked to, Cornelius the centurion, that was a peaceful area, at least during the time Peter was talking to him. I would love to know what Cornelius did when Rome attacked Jerusalem. We don't have the answer to that question, but as a policing official, because that's what he would have been doing there, I have to imagine he didn't have to use violent force. So that's my next little thing. I just want to state this. No Christians talk about a theory of just war until after the time of Constantine. It's not until you have a Christian emperor who's overseeing a Christian military that this even becomes a topic. And that is because since Christians weren't in the upper echelons of Roman culture, Roman government, they didn't have to wrestle with questions about what's the proper use of force. But once Constantine, and you know, there's a big debate about whether he was a genuine Christian or not, but nonetheless, Christians started to take on a more prominent role in the government. And so they had to wrestle with, is it okay for the Christian emperor to use force and in what capacity? My guess is, now again, we don't have writings to confirm this. My guess is that this was already reaching ahead before Constantine because there were just more and more people becoming Christians in the Roman Empire, more and more people who were in the Roman military even before the time of Constantine. And so my guess is pastorally, this was an issue, but as things always happen, when the lead leader becomes a topic of discussion, it really drives everything else. And that's what we see. Ambrose is the first person to articulate a just war theory within Christian circles. Augustine, his disciple, is the one who really strongly articulates. And that's really important to note. They didn't invent just war theory. Aristotle invented just war theory. Cicero and other Roman officials invented just war theory. They took ideas that were already developed by pagans as they were trying to think about how can we run just wars, or in Cicero's case, how can we rhetorically justify just wars? <laughs> how can we make a case to the populace that we're not doing something bad? These ideas had already been developed, and Augustine essentially baptizes them. So here's a quote from a guy who's defending just war, and he's explaining 
why Augustine came to the conclusions he did about just war. And in the book, what he's really articulating is he's saying, Augustine didn't take these ideas from the New Testament. He wasn't driven by his reading of the Bible to go to a just war position. He was driven by his circumstances. So he says, what was appropriate in the time of the apostles, i.e. nonviolence, is not appropriate in the day and age when kings and nations have succumbed to the gospel. So Augustine was improving. He's saying, times are changing <laughs> and we got to figure out how to live in this new time. And now that we're here, I think we have to change what has been the historic ethic of the church and we need to reevaluate the use of violence. And so he adopts, he takes in this old pagan idea of just war and he essentially baptizes it. And here's the deal. You can backload lots of Bible verses into just war. It is incredibly dishonest to say that it was taken from the Bible. It was taken from pagan thinkers. And then again, the Bible is applied to it. Now, all truths, God's truths, someone can say to me, look, doesn't matter where it came from. I think it matters some. That's part of it. So you're saying that circumstances caused Augustine, Ambrose before him, but mainly Augustine, to wrestle with this topic in a way that hadn't been before, and that he then saw things in Scripture that others hadn't seen up till then. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you're saying, or the, at least a part of it. As a fan of Augustine. Right. As a somewhat fan of Augustine, you are. So let me see if I understand then. Is this a fair comparison? Is that the church used to teach that the earth was the center of the universe, but circumstances or science showed them that it wasn't. And so therefore, those circumstances from non-Christian scientists and some Christian scientists caused them to reevaluate how they saw the Bible. And they realized, hey, we had missed something that was there, but what prompted them to re-examine the Bible were circumstances. I think that's a interesting and half-right comparison. Half right in the sense that here's what didn't happen. They didn't go back to the Bible and try to backload passages that clearly describe the earth being on pillars and kind of being in the center of things. They didn't try to say, actually, this really meant that the earth is a globe and it goes around the sun. In other words, they didn't backload passages into it. They just simply said, no, those passages had to do with their understanding of how reality worked. They're almost exclusively in metaphorical context, so we don't need to take it totally literalistically, nor was it the goal of the author, right? What I'm critiquing here is the backloading of passages, saying this passage in the Bible, which couldn't possibly mean the just war thing because just war didn't exist, now means this. Does that make sense? Well, so, so I'm agreeing like circumstances have changing and that will change how we read the Bible. So on that front, I'm like, yeah, that's a fair critique and, and thought. It's a backloading of Bible verses I have a problem with. So when Augustine went and saw Romans 13, just for example, mm-hmm. you're saying that he was backloading it, that Romans 13 had never been understood to be what he was now saying it meant, and that he was reinterpreting Romans 13, and probably you'd say misinterpreting Romans 13 in light of this new reality that uh, Christians are taking leadership roles in the military and the government. Yeah, so everybody has different numbers of components to just war. Right. My point is that let's say there's seven-ish, that's where most people land. Romans 13 really doesn't fit into any of them, maybe with the exception of number one, which is that you have to have a legitimate authority to go to war. Now, because I believe Romans 13 is about policing, I don't think it has anything to do with going to war. And I don't think most Christians thought it had anything to do with going to war in the times of Paul, right? So that's a separate argument. But my point is, you don't look at Romans 13 and come out the other side with a just war theory. Not as we have it. I just defy anyone to read Romans 13 and come up with the seven categories that people often use for just war. Well, I agree. I'm not saying it disagrees with them. I'm just saying it didn't come from there. So don't say it did. Look, we're not supposed to be arguing here, right? But (laughs) you're trying to bait me into it. So let me just say this and you move on. I agree that you're not going to read Romans 13 and come up with seven criteria of just war. But I think 
you're wrong that you're barely going to come up with maybe half of one. I think you're going to come up with a little bit more than that. I just think it matters. History matters. Did we change our ethics simply to fit a moment? Yeah, it's a good question. We're living in the midst of the gay marriage debate. We're living in the midst of the transgender debate. There are plenty of Christians who are changing their ethics to fit the moment. Now, I'm not one of those people, nor will I ever be one of those people. So I'm asking, do those same questions that we're asking today, do the same things that we're wrestling with today, do they apply back then? Okay, next up is the practical value of nonviolent resistance. I'm hoping you're going to ask questions about realism during our time together, so I'm not going to go deep into this, but I would simply point out very quickly that nonviolent resistance has been used throughout history to great, great, great good. Obviously, people will point to Martin Luther King or to Gandhi. One of my favorite examples, though, is that people love to bring up Bonhoeffer because he was a pacifist for a time, and then he changed his mind, and he got involved in an effort to execute Hitler. And it's not really clear whether he actually left his pacifism behind. He might have just said, look, I know this is a sin, but I just don't know what else to do. But here's what's interesting. The most successful efforts at keeping the Nazis from taking Jews were almost exclusively nonviolent. The best example were Bulgarian Jews. There was a nonviolent resistance there that rescued 48,000 Jews. Of course, we've all seen the story of Schindler's List and others. By nonviolent, you don't mean like what Dr. King did by marching in streets. You mean quietly sneaking people out, something more like on the Underground Railway, Mm -hmm. something parallel to that, right? Yeah. So it's not marching, demonstrating in a nonviolent way. You're just saying they didn't take up arms to try to kill German soldiers, but instead they did things to get people papers or whatever it was required to get people out of harm's way. They used nonviolent means to resist Hitler. The violent means to resist Hitler, that plot to take his life, there's no doubt that it made him more paranoid and might have elevated, escalated the amount of violence with which he was executing the war. And so this is one of the paradoxes about realism is you have to wrestle with, at times, does violence lead to more violence? And at times, would nonviolence actually like Jesus who died on the cross? Is that the thing that ultimately leads to more just ordered peace? So I strongly reject the notion. People are like, yeah, you have to have war for just order peace. I'm like, well, Jesus didn't have to have war. I don't have to have war. I don't think kingdom of God people don't have to have war. Jesus didn't have to have war for a justly ordered peace. When did Jesus establish justly ordered peace in this world? Well, I would say that Jesus established justly ordered peace by defeating the power of sin and the devil. In the spiritual realm, but not here. Well, but I think the spiritual realm has actual effects in the present. And so that began to transform people's lives. And there is no doubt. I mean, read Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Christians and this ethic that Jesus established have radically changed the order of society. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't disagree with that. And by the way, a fantastic book. I just thought you said for a second, that's what I was clarifying, not arguing. Government, <laughs> it yeah. sounded like Jesus had established a justly ordered peace in a nonviolent way yes, in this world. I agree with that. Okay, well, where is, what city is that? I want to go visit. It's called the church. The church is a counterculture. The church is a counter society. The church has its own ethic. And within our own confines, we are showing- justly ordered. We have justice in the church. So there's no scandals. There's no power abuse. There's no- I'm not saying it's a perfect justice and ordering, right? And I would say that in those instances, we have to bring about just order. That's why you have things inside of the church, which which set up- church discipline. All that, right? So- My point is, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he goes on top of a mountain. Why? So that he looks like Moses. And it's clear Mm -hmm. from, I mean, everybody agrees, Jesus is doing. And what did Moses do on Sinai? He laid down the laws of the theocracy of Israel. What is Jesus doing? He's laying down, this is what kind of society we're going to be together. So I will contend, we have a real society. It's a society within a society where we're exiles, we're aliens, all that.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together, that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Last little bit that we're going to do here, and then you got to hop in. Just realize there are variations of Christian nonviolence. People are going to draw their lines in different places. We've already talked about this. The first line is self-defense. Can I use violence to defend myself? Someone's coming at me with a knife, and I think they're going to stab me. Can I use violence? Can I pull up my knife and stab them back and get out of there? Right? Well, I think you said earlier you could shoot them in the leg. Well, I, I, th- <laughs> I, I think I said earlier that the definition of violence has to do with the intention to destroy. Right. Okay. So and if so, I just stab him in the arm, that's okay. Well, again, I, mean, I don't know. I'm just I, I don't know. A genuine question. So, I, and that's that's where, by the way, any definition of justice is going to get you into trouble. That's just the best one I've seen out there. So, I think in general, Christians should avoid physical force. Just in general, they should avoid using physical force as much as possible. So, what would you do then to go back to your question? Someone's coming at you with a knife or a gun or something. Yeah. That's so, what you were setting up. I think that we have a boatload of options sitting in front of us in terms of resistance. For example, depending on where I'm located, I can resist verbally, right? I can yell, I can shout, right? I can resist physically. That can entail running away, throwing things inside of the path to obstruct the person. I could physically resist, I think, in good conscience by trying to shove the person away if that was possible. Beyond that, and people will laugh at me. No, they already are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, beyond that, let's think about Hezekiah. What does he do when he has the world's largest superpower surrounding him? He prays. Now, people, they can laugh at me. They can say, oh, you dumb idiot, you're going to pray. Oh, you better believe I'm going to pray. And you better believe that I actually think God can do things. Actually, there's a story of a woman. Guy comes into her house with a knife, says, I'm going to murder you and her family. And she goes, you can murder us, but first, let me make a cup of coffee Mm -hmm. for you. It is a true story. And- He goes, okay. She pours him a coffee. And does he murder them? No. No, he doesn't. And part of this has to do with the fact that I know that I will be resurrected. I don't know if that other person is. I don't know where they're at their life with Jesus. If I take their life, I might be sending that person to hell. Now, of course, we have to have a theology of God's sovereignty and all of that built around it. But if I, just to clarify, you're not saying this is just your personal preference or or no, how you I want to shoot the guy's it. head off. What you're saying is you think this is what the Bible teaches every Christian should do. Every Christian should pray, shout, push, whatever it is you said, and and not uh, Barricade, shoot them back. Hide, yes. Unless they can shoot them in the arm. You brought up a great example. And again, because I just try to be an honest person, I, I, I think I think if you were a good enough shot to be confident that I could shoot the gun out of their hands right. or shoot, sure. Like if that's you, it's not me, right. <laughs> then fine. If I have a shotgun and adrenaline's pumping through my body, sure. 
I don't know what the heck I'm going to hit. Someone might be running into your house saying, I'm going to shoot all of you because they just want to take your TV. They don't actually want to shoot you. They want to freak you out so they can take your TV, right? You don't know. One of the problems here is that we often think that when someone comes at us with violence, we know their intention. They Mm -hmm. are going to try to kill me. You don't know their intention. And you can just look at the statistics. When you have a gun inside your house, it's more likely that someone in your house is going to die in these kinds of circumstances than someone who doesn't have a gun. Why? Well, it turns out when you pull a gun on a guy, now he feels like his life's threatened. What does he start doing? He but your shooting. argument isn't from practical no, no, no. benefits. Your argument is the Bible, and this is binding yes. on all Christians. Yes, let's but be you're faithful. saying that there are some practical, real-world benefits I, from practice. This question is used as the ultimate dunk question on me constantly. This one is? Oh, yeah. This is the dunk question. People are like, oh, someone's going to get your wife. And they create these outlandish. It's like, there's not a circumstance in the world where I have to choose between killing someone or being killed. Like, that's theoretical, right? You literally would never know in the moment, is that my only choice sitting here on the table? You have to make a judgment call in the moment of if that may or may not be my only choice. But it isn't hypothetical. I mean, real people do face that. Yes. They don't always they know They don't know beforehand. what's going to happen. I mean, not with certainty. You're correct. Not with a lot of certainty. But it turns out that- People kill people. They did die. <laughs> right? There are people who kill people. There are people who die. My point is that in the moment, both in terms of faithfulness and in terms of practicality, don't call me an idealist. There's a strong case to be made that I might actually survive something by being nonviolent that I wouldn't have survived had I chosen the violent path. And if you don't understand that, again, I welcome you to go look at the statistics. So when you say this is the dunk question, I think what we do, and this is appropriate in the context of a a debate kind of conversation, is that we try to find the crux of the matter. Mm -hmm. And what people are trying to find is how far are you going to carry this, right? Yeah. I remember in 1988, there's a debate between Michael Dukakis and George Bush. This is a senior Bush. And the very first question of the debate (laughs) was to Dukakis. And it said, he was very anti against the death penalty. And they asked him, if someone came in and raped your wife and killed her, would you be against the death penalty for that person? And it was a very first question. I mean, what a way to start a debate. And he was ahead in the polls. Dukakis, the Democrat, was ahead in the polls at the time. And people point back to that being one of several things that cost him the election Mm -hmm. because most people can't identify. So I guess people are just trying, when you say it's a dunk question, people are trying to put you in a spot where you have to pick your wife, not yourself, that's easier, your wife and kids or so, so you, you actually just someone. hit something. We have elided two categories into one in the midst of this conversation. We started with self-defense, and mm-hmm. somehow now we've moved into others' defense. Mm-hmm. Neighbor defense. Yeah, neighbor defense. And I just want to say this. Augustine, the creator of Just War, he taught very explicitly that you should not use violence in self-defense. So he acknowledged policing, warfare. Those were the ones he explicitly acknowledged. That's cases where violence can be used. I just don't know if he talked about neighbor defense for the sake of others. I do know that he explicitly said you cannot use violence for self-defense. So again, the guy who invented the theory that is driving a lot of this stuff, he would say, don't defend yourself. Yeah, I agree. And and this is why for me, it's the most black and white one, right? And this is where I get my concerns. I've sat in a room with a pastor who told a room full of people, don't walk into my house in the middle of the night. Because if you do, I have a gun and I will assume you want to kill me and I will shoot you and kill you. And everybody in the room started laughing. Like, this is such a funny joke, but yeah, I'm definitely not going to your house. And yeah, we're right to do that, right? We're right to just pull out a gun and shoot people. You know, and I'm sitting here, I'm like, this is the equivalent of the progressive pastor talking about, look, let's just give marriage to that small proportion of people who are homosexual. Let's acknowledge that, right? He's completely run over the ethic of Jesus, turned it into a joke. 
And I find it just totally well, it could disturbing. be neighbor defense. He could have been saying, look, my family's asleep here. I'm going to defend my family. Yeah. I, right? I mean, you're conflating self-defense that, that's, that's and totally possible. I, I don't want to get too many details on the person. Oh. I can be quite Was certain. I there? No, you weren't there. Oh, I can bummer. be quite certain that this person didn't have a family to defend. It was <laughs> talking about this person. Okay. About Anyways, you don't know this person. Oh. Anyways, okay. So let's keep going. A second example. So we're recording this right after Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Yeah. Okay. You, you thought it was real from the beginning, or did part of you think it was staged? I, I because still nobody don't know. watches the Oscars. I didn't watch <laughs> so it. So it's like I didn't watch it until after. What do we do to get an audience yeah. for our television show? It could have been staged. Uh, I don't think it was. I don't know if it was. Let's pretend like it wasn't. Okay. Just for the sake of talking about this, because the person I was talking to definitely didn't think it was staged. Thought it was real. He slapped him though, just like we were yeah. talking earlier. The insult. The I know. Shame. It's, it's literally Jesus talks about slapping and how you respond, right? So I agree. Chris Rock's joke about Will Smith's wife, that's not okay. No, it was okay. Well, I mean, in context, it's, it's a that's burn. That's what it's you do when you go there. Okay, so you and I can disagree about that. Making fun of her alopecia, I don't know. Whatever. I'm with you. It's part of the shtick, so you know what you're there for. Yeah. Anyways, Will Smith smacks him across the face, which I definitely think was wrong. And then Chris Rock responds with relative yeah. kindness. He doesn't handle himself really doesn't well. Doesn't press charges against the guy. I think, so Chris Rock did the right thing. Yes. Will Smith did the right thing. Agreed. Now, I have a very committed friend, committed follower of Jesus, who has continually been telling me, I stand with Will Smith. And he told me, he goes, look, I don't want to live in a world where someone can insult my wife and not get slapped on the face. This goes back to, I suppose, maybe kind of neighbor defense, although not really, because there's no violence. Well, this goes back to the speech is violence thing right now, which is craziness. But here's my point. I think because Christians have lived in this cultural context, we have become profoundly comfortable with the idea of Christians using violence in almost any circumstance, as long as any small amount of harm has been done. Now, I don't want to press this to extremes, right? If someone insults me, no one's going to say I can go and shoot them and kill them, right? But they're with Will Smith. Go slap them. So I told my friend, he goes, I don't want to live in a society like that. I looked at him, I go, well, you might want to go read Matthew 5, 38 to 39, because it sounds like the kind of society Jesus wanted. And what did he say? He had no response. Because what do you say, right? Like, I don't know. That's why I was interested because <laughs> you said this is like a committed follower of Christ. Yeah. So, But this is my point. I think violence is an area. Most evangelical Christians are living in alignment on sexuality, at least their views of sexuality, right? Maybe not in their practical lives. Most, I think, though, would say, hey, I believe the Bible's sexual ethic. Evangelicals would. When it comes to violence, I think we have a massive misalignment. Okay, let me just go to the last two. So we talked about neighbor defense. Self-defense is one thing. Neighbor defense, defending your wife your child in a break-in or a neighbor who's being attacked, right? Again, I think that's more gray. The reason being, someone can make the argument that it's a lesser of two evils. In other words, the evil of killing someone <laughs> is a lesser evil than allowing that person to kill someone else. It's not my life, it's their life. And so there's an argument to be made there, and I think it's kind of legitimate. Next up would be policing and state-sanctioned execution, okay? This is Romans 13. Now, I already said in our last thing, I think that the Bible allows for the fact that states will police, and states will use violent force while policing, and that states will execute the death penalty in response to certain infractions of rules. In our but country, if I remember what you said in the last episode, you don't think Christians can do that. So that, you don't think Christians can be a police officer mm, who plays that role, or they yes. have a desk job or something, but you don't think a police officer or a captain of a police department, you don't think that that role is open to Christians. Yeah, so I think what I would say is, for me, policing is the most gray area. If there's one thing that the New Testament does seem to talk about, it's this idea of policing. You have all of these military people who become converts who would have been, as military officials in Judea, policing. That would have been their job. So I think that this is a gray area where I could be comfortable with someone being a committed to Christian nonviolence and self-defense, Christian nonviolence and neighbor defense, but maybe take a different tack on policing and say, no, in policing, God allows this. This is the only thing I want to say. 
Romans 12 and 13. Paul lays out the kingdom ethic. He says, you guys don't do vengeance. I think that should be the Christian ethic for all Christians. And then he says, there are people who will do it. And that's Romans 13. It's going to be the state. He seems to be, in my reading, to be operating under the assumption that Christians will do what Christians are supposed to do and they will not do that with the state. In other words, when my allegiance to Jesus comes up against my allegiance to my country, I pick Jesus's ethic, not the country's ethic. And so I can imagine someone being a police officer and just having to make the choice, I will not kill. And now maybe they can't become a police officer because of that, or maybe they have to be a little bit dishonest in the process of becoming a police officer. I don't know, right? Like I'm acknowledging the problems here, or maybe you're converted while you're a police officer. And so you can just stay in your job, but you would know I'm not going to try to destroy, injure someone in that fashion, my definition of violence. Now, why does God allow the state to do this? This goes back to the paradox of the Old Testament. God looks at Babylon and says, you're my rod of justice, and I'm going to judge you for the justice that you've done. What's Paul doing in Romans 13? Richard Hayes, scholar of the New Testament, says he is alluding to the Old Testament all over the place in Romans 13. What's he trying to say? He's saying, look, Rome, it's just like that. It's going to order society, but guess what? Judgment's coming. And I just don't know if as Christians, we have to navigate. Yes, we're gonna be a part of that, but there's gonna be areas where we have to resist. Daniel won't eat the food. Daniel won't do his prayer to Darius, right? There's gonna be places where we say no. And I think for Christians, violence might be one of those places in policing and in government jobs. But I think the government has the right to do it. We just don't do it with them. So we've heard your steel man argument. The best you can do in the short period of time laying out the... This has been the opposite of short, whatever it was. The (laughs) non-violent But I had to do it because no one knows this position. No, I think it's really interesting. And mine won't take as long because people already believe the truth and therefore <laughs> and the truth will set them free right. yeah so, so, so you'll get to, know i'm right you'll get to ask your questions i didn't say anything about military but i think it's just patently obvious the goal of military action combatant action is to kill and i don't think the bible says anything about military action there are lots of military jobs where you will never see action you will never be a combatant and so i do think christians can be in the military just a little bit of a clarification then so i think you said a christian could be a police officer on a patrol or something like that as long as they don't seek to kill a person, they could use other force. So does that apply to a military, a soldier too? Yeah. That a soldier could fire a weapon as long as they didn't intend to kill the person? Or is there some line that separates those two that's more I would need a soldier, I think, and a police officer in the room to have this discussion, right? that's fair. My understanding is that police officers are trained to de-escalate situations Mm -hmm. and use minimal force. Mm -hmm. Military people, for very understandable reasons, are taught to do the exact opposite. Sure. That makes sense. So that's a giant thing. And when it comes to actual warfare, I just don't see anything in the New Testament that allows Christians to participate. This goes back to my government thing, though. Governments will wage wars. Nations will war against nations. Just without Christians being involved. Is can Christians actually participate in the warfare aspect? I could go be a chaplain in the military with good conscience. I could go be a medical officer in the military with good conscience. If I was in Ukraine, someone said, what are you going to do in Ukraine? I can tell you exactly what I do. I would be a chaplain or I would be one of the people, and there's lots of them, who are volunteering by driving around all kinds of resources and food. And all of those are things you can do as a Christian. You cannot participate in the violence. That's my steel man. God bless you. Thank you for laying it out for us. I think it was, a, it was great. It was a lot shorter than reading a book, more interesting. You made it fun, and we learned a lot. All right, let's do a steel man of just war.
Okay, so now, Patrick, it's my time to present the Steel Man argument of just war. Can't wait. So you're going to do for me what I did for you, and that is ask clarifying questions. And that is ask you a question very early on, which puts you in the worst position possible. But see, you're not as dumb as I am. I went right there. I saw this look in your eyes when we got onto the topic of, you know, would you protect your wife at home? You're like, I did it. Somehow I got him to go to the worst part of his argument first thing. But here's the deal. I don't need to be right. I don't need to win. I just want to give a fair argument. Mm -hmm. It's just war, Keith. All right, so just to make sure everybody knows, after this, we go to questions that we're going to ask each other. So that's going to be episode three, where we roast each other, because we've decided this episode (laughs) was going to be too long if we included it. Okay, so you'll be looking forward to that. All right, so I... I am, just like Patrick, depending on you to have listened to the previous episode, because I'm going to move through this a little bit quicker, and I assume that you've heard all the biblical evidence already laid out. Here we go. So let's just start with kind of the definition of what just war is. And when I talk about just war, and I think what most other people talk about, at least Christians, because like you had alluded to earlier, there are people who aren't Christians who have some sort of just war philosophy or approach. But what Christians mean by it is some kind of war that's undertaken that conforms to the demands of love, that is trying to pursue justice, that recognizes human dignity, and that operates in a way that is morally measured. So just war is done to try to protect innocent third parties from gross injustice. So I started off with a definition of violence because I felt like that would help our conversation. Do you have a definition of violence and force? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. So the way I am using the word force is in reference to the power necessary to uphold or restore justice and peace. So force is what is required to restore justice. Violence at least the way I'm using it, I know it's a little bit different than the way that you're using yeah, it, yeah. is anything that is in excess of that, anything that is destroying justice, anything that's destroying peace. Okay, so my definition of violence certainly includes your definition of violence. Absolutely, you, right? but yours is bigger. Mine's bigger. What's, there, there are things that I would call violence, which you would call force. Yeah, and I think that's important to me, partly because the word violence has a lot of negative baggage to it, mm-hmm. negative connotations to it. And I want to distinguish between kind of uh, mean-spirited, excessive, cruel violence from justified use of force in love of someone else. Yeah, I think that's fair because my definition of violence didn't allow a lot of gradation. Everything gets lumped into the same category where, you know, someone murdering someone else out of cold blood gets the same name as someone who's defending his wife from that murder. And that's kind of what you were trying to distinguish between, I think. All right, so my contention is that in a Genesis 3 world, which remember is a world in which there is sin, a world between Eden and the restored kingdom, between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, In a Genesis 3 world, there is a proper use of force. So it's really important to me, I think, to say that I don't think that just war is on the opposite end of a spectrum of, say, pacifism or nonviolence, as you like to call it. I don't see those as opposite ends of a spectrum. What I see opposite ends of the spectrum are pacifism and militarism, and that just war is a mediating position between those two. So militarism is a desire to expand a nation's boundaries, to pursue national interests at the expense of other countries, 
Militarism is done out of joy and pride and vengeance and a lust for power. So it is violent and horrible and ugly and sinful and ungodly. So this would include things like imperialistic conquest, Assyria, Babylon, expanding their borders just for the sake of having more, owning more, being in control of more. This would include what a lot of people call colonialism. I think it includes, say, what Russia is doing right now in Ukraine, right? They're expanding their borders for their national interests out of national pride. That's a militarism that can occur in any country. And you're saying your view sits in the middle between that and probably a form of pacifism that I wouldn't even affirm. So a radical pacifism, which would say all force, all violence in all circumstances is not okay. Whereas I've made a lot of qualifications (laughs) around my view. Yeah, As I listen to your view, I thought you and I are closer, which it shouldn't shock me, is that we're closer than someone who just hears just war and pacifist or nonviolence might at first think. So just war then is trying to find a position in a Genesis 3 world that recognizes that injustice exists, we have to love our neighbor, and sees force as being a good way to love our neighbor. See, I don't think force is evil in and of itself, because I think God uses force. And if force by itself is evil, then that would make God a sinner. So it doesn't quite make sense to me that force in and of itself is wrong. And also think of something like Proverbs 24, 11. Now, we mentioned a bunch of verses in the first episode, but here's just yeah, one, just a reminder. Rescue those who are being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. And you think the way to do that in this view would be through violence? One way. I don't think it's the only way. I think there's a lot of ways that we could rescue those being led away to death. But I think force is one way to do that. Okay, so let's get to the goal. What is the goal of using force? Yeah, I think this is a good question. The goal is a just peace. And I think a just peace is different than peace alone. So what we're not looking for is the absence of conflict. And I feel like, not necessarily you, but a lot of pacifists out there are looking for just the absence of conflict. But I think that's the kind of peace that maybe mafia bosses have. (laughs) That, right, we have peace among the families, the warring families, but it's not just. There's a lot of people being manipulative, taken advantage of, harmed in the process of this peaceful mafia-run town. What we're looking for in a just war worldview is justice, the kind of peace that comes from justice. So Aquinas says, peace is not a virtue, it's the fruit of a virtue. So if force is used to bring about justice, I think the Christian can engage in that, and we got to still get to more qualifications, but I think the Christian can engage in that wholeheartedly. So C.S. Lewis wrote in The Way to Glory, he wrote an essay on why I'm not a pacifist. And as you know, C.S. Lewis was a World War I vet and really had a horrible experience in World War I. Brutal experience. Wouldn't really talk about it. No, but he comes back and after that writes why I'm not a pacifist. And he says that way too many people fight their battles, fight in battles with a long face, meaning dourly, sadly, reluctantly. And he says, no, that shouldn't be your approach. You should be able to fight the war with enthusiasm because you're making sacrifices to bring about justice. One more quote, this one from Reinhold Niebuhr, who was writing in 1930s, and this is talking about the 
rise of Hitler and Nazism. And he used to be a pacifist. He changed his mind on this issue. Well, Hitler changed a lot of people's minds, yep. right? I mean, to some extent, he changed Bonhoeffer's mind, which mm -hmm. I know you referred to earlier. So this is what Niebuhr says. He says, it is not possible to disavow war absolutely without disavowing the task of establishing justice. So here, just to be clear, the people from the just war believe that what we're looking for is a just peace. And in order to bring that about, it may be necessary to use force to accomplish that. So let's spend a second now and talk about the history of just war. Because, I mean, I would love to talk about what the Bible says about it, but since it doesn't come from the Bible, it's easier <laughs> oh, to go straight to history. So I'm just kidding. Well, I'm kind of kidding. <laughs> oh, you're not no, kidding at all. <laughs> let's talk about the history of just war. Where does this come from and how do we think about it? Well, you talked earlier about how the early church did not believe that Christians could be involved in war and that the early Christian worldview is more of a nonviolence or a pacifist in nature. And, you know, the more that I looked into it, I don't think I agree with that. Even Richard Hayes, who you quoted earlier and who is himself a pacifist, says that the evidence is much more uneven than your average pacifist would tell you. Yes, it is true that there weren't a lot of Christians involved in the Roman military in the very earliest stages right after the New Testament is concluded. And part of that is because the early church thought that Christ was returning soon. So they weren't involved in a lot of things in the world. They thought Christ was coming right back, so why get involved in anything? Another big reason that there weren't a lot of Christians involved in the military is that in Rome, in order to be a part of the military, you had to take these oaths to the emperor, and you had to proclaim that he was the high priest. You had to practice these sacrifices to the imperial cult, you know, that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. And so a lot of Christians were compromised, not because of the actual killing, but because of the religious implications of just being a member of the Roman military. If I can add to your steel man, because I'm not afraid of strengthening your argument, I would say that the examples we have of Christians leaving the Roman military are explicitly, exclusively because of idolatry. So there are people who leave the military. We don't have any written examples of people doing it because of violence. It's always because of idolatry. And that doesn't mean that violence didn't have a part of the picture, but again, that would be an argument from silence. And you know how I feel about those. You know Patrick is feeling confident when he's helping my steel man <laughs> argument. Well, I'm just trying to do unto you as I wish you had done unto me. You can tell what he's doing. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. But I think you make a good point, and I just want to take it one more level up and to say that we know there are Roman soldiers who are Christians, and we don't have any call in the early church for them to leave the military. So it is an argument from silence, but you would think— Maybe there would be some people saying, hey, all you people becoming Christians, you should find a new profession. We know that there were Christians there because in the 170s, we have multiple sources who tell us about a Roman legion called the Thundering Legion. And they were out fighting against the barbarians. They didn't have any water. The soldiers all prayed. It rained. And Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, gave Christians credit for saving that legion and ending up winning the battle against the barbarians. So we know there are a lot of Christians in the Roman military because the emperor is acknowledging them and giving them credit for winning this battle. Never do we see anybody saying, hey, you Christians, you need to get out. None of the church fathers do that. All right, so then we come to Augustine, who you talked about earlier. and Post-Constantine, just give people, because everybody's history isn't all there. Fair enough. So 
Augustine's born in about 350. Yeah, late 300s. And dies in about 430, something like that, right? And he's living through a really tumultuous time. Constantine becomes a Christian in the early 300s. By the mid-400s, the Roman Empire is essentially no more. It's completely fallen to the barbarian hordes of the north. Well, and if I understand it right, Rome starts to fall apart. People start blaming Christians Christians for it falling apart. So Augustine writes City of God to explain how it's not the Christians' fault. The Christians are loyal both to Rome and to the kingdom of heaven. They're people of two kingdoms. So I guess my point in all this, and I don't have to go through all the details, is I think the history of the early church is more mixed than some people might think. Here's why this is important, because pacifists sometimes say, hey, look, the early church was pure. They kind of had it right on all these things. And then once Christians got power through Constantine, everything started getting corrupted after that. And I'm not quite buying it. Now, by the time you get to the Reformation, now it's completely different than it was before Constantine. So Martin Luther says that just like every other profession, a soldier can do their job well or poorly, sinfully or justfully. So Luther sees war as bad, but he sees it as the best of bad options. One of the reformers, Zwingli, out of Switzerland, was an actual military soldier, a mercenary even. But you do have this strand coming out of the Reformation that's called the Anabaptists or the radical reformers. And they were persecuted by the state church. So they came to the conclusion that the Christian church needed to withdraw from the state, that Christians shouldn't be involved in political office, they shouldn't be involved in government, they shouldn't be involved in the military. And to be honest, when you go through your argument for pacifism, you sound a lot like an Anabaptist. We should withdraw, live in the kingdom of God, let the kingdom of the world do their thing. And I don't think the Anabaptists quite got a lot of stuff right. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take this. I critiqued you for taking your ideas from pagans, and you can critique me for taking my ideas from deeply committed Christians. Everybody's got to have their thing. But you're right. The Anabaptists, at least from the Reformation forward, so if we're not talking about the early church, were the first group to really reclaim the doctrine or the idea, I shouldn't say doctrine, the idea of Christian nonviolence. And the way they did it, though, is what I think is important, is they did it by saying Christians need to separate from the world, separate from government, separate from all the power structures of the world. We need to go over here and live out the kingdom of God on earth and let all those worldly people do their worldly thing. Yeah. So I think that's the roots that bore the fruit of pacifism. And I think it's worth adding, I mean, they're not alone. You have the Quakers, you have the Mennonites, you have other movements that do come out of this, take the exact same boat, the Meridian Brotherhood. I mean, there's a large number of people and they're mixed bags. Some of these people are the people who led the early evangelistic missionary movements. And so there's a lot of credit to be due, yeah, but I agree with great you. People. And I'm going to go with you and say, yeah, I don't think the right solution to the problem is to just pull yourself entirely out of the world, to pull yourself entirely out of any state business. And I couldn't square that with examples like Daniel and Joseph. Yeah, we'll get to that, I'm sure, in the questions we have for each other. That's good. But let's see if we can move on and just give us a description of what just war is. Can I ask a question really quick before oh, we before go there? We get there? Because I'm just looking through the notes. Just a clarification, right? No, this is a clarification because I don't know if we're going to talk about it. Obviously, in my section, I went all the way from self-defense to very briefly military. And here we're just talking about just war, which is what we set up. So I'm not critiquing you. But are you going to talk about self-defense, neighbor defense, any of those questions? When I was thinking about this, I wasn't thinking of the same paradigm that you were. I could speak to those things, but I hadn't delineated it quite enough. But I will tell you this, is that I agree with you on self-defense 
Probably. I mean, I have some questions about it, but essentially I do agree on self-defense that Christians should not defend themselves. On everything else, I probably disagree, okay. but we can talk about that later. So yeah. in a just war, what we're saying is that we need to use force morally. Not all force is moral, but we can use force morally. And that is if it's working toward a just peace. So there are several different elements to a just war theory. And, you know, different people emphasize different ones. Aquinas, Augustine, modern thinkers, they all have the ones that they like to emphasize. But let me just run through them so that people can kind of get an idea of what makes a just war just. And before we hop in, because this is a question I have, is this a rubric? In other words, like, do you have to check all these boxes to be declared a just war? Or is this just a set of questions that you ask? And so, yeah, maybe we've got six or seven categories Four out of seven, that's enough. Like, just so people are hearing this the right way. I think that's good. It's not a theory as much as a set of questions. A government, which we'll see why it's a government here in a second, needs to ask themselves before they go into a war. And I don't know that you have to check all the boxes. I think that some of these deal with should you go to war, and some of them deal with how should you practice the war once you're in it. And for your steel man, do you have any strong feelings just in terms of, I think you have to get these ones, I'm wobblier on these ones. I don't know if you're going to go through that. One of the critiques that I think can be made of Just War is that these are vague and nebulous and in a person's hands who really wants to go to war, they can find justification wherever they want to find it. You know, in other words, they can manipulate the evidence to fit these questions. So they're kind of subjective. They're very subjective. But a Christian who's honestly, faithfully trying to do the right thing should take into account these questions to ask whether a war is just. Hmm. And you're trusting the person being as objective as possible. So your point is, if you're asking these questions in good conscience— Yeah, I think that's a good And you're able to self-reflectively evaluate, (laughs) what are my personal motivations? What are my personal allegiances? And these are helpful questions to guide you through the process. The first one is just cause. So the reason you're going to war is really important. So a just cause is something like to rectify or prevent an injustice. See, just war advocates recognize that there's something worse than war, and that is oppression or gross injustice or crimes against humanity, and that all human beings have this responsibility to love their neighbor, and that might require the use of force. So the first question to ask is, is this a just cause? So for example, national interests, expanding our borders, national pride to gain access to oil fields or to other natural resources, those are not just causes to go to war. War should not be an aggressive act. It should be on behalf of someone else, or it should be because you've been attacked. Make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Okay, so the second one is right intention. This goes to motive. So you can have a wrong motive, and like we already kind of said, pride, reputation, vengeance, national gain, territorial expansion. Those are wrong motives. The right motive is the greater good of a justly ordered peace. So think in terms of World War II. There are concentration camps. That's a just cause to intervene on behalf of others that they would not be murdered in the concentration camps, and we are going to overthrow Hitler and reestablish a good government in 
Europe. That would be an example of a just intention, a right intention of going to war. All right, number three. Proper authority. So private people don't get to declare war. That power was given to the state. So this is Romans 13. So I can't declare war. Will Smith can't declare war on Chris Rock, right? I can't declare war. War has to be done by those who have been given authority by God. So this is John 18 and 19, Jesus before Pilate. You have this power because God gave it to you. It's Paul before the courts. In Acts 25, you have this power because God gave it to you. Okay, so proper authority, by the way, also Romans 13, 2 Peter, other passages we mentioned. This was the one where I was saying, hey, where can you backload a lot of Bible passages into? This one really makes a lot of sense to me. That The Bible does seem to pretty clearly teach that there are authorities that have the power of the sword. Now, again, I've got my caveats around whether Romans 13 is about war or policing, and we can have that debate. Nonetheless, if you think it's about more than policing, this is one of those ones where I just have to say, yeah, there's a lot of Bible verses on this. Right. You and I are going to disagree whether Christians can participate in it. Yeah. I think you acknowledge that God has given government that authority. It's just whether Christians can I'm participate. Just, I'm, I'm lending my strength to your steel man right oh, now and saying God bless proper you. authority, that seems to be a key one. So another one about whether you should go to war is last resort. In other words, have you tried diplomatic things? Have you tried, in our modern terminology, you might say sanctions? Have you tried to broker peace? And you have to say, yeah, we feel like we've satisfied all the legitimate avenues open to us to avoid war, but those failed. So now we're going to use force to accomplish the justly ordered peace. So one more on whether you should go to war is, does this war have a reasonable chance of succeeding in its objectives? Now, that's super subjective, right? I mean, how in the world could you know that ahead of time? But you don't want to go into war and cause a bunch of damage and destruction and death when you can't really accomplish the objective that you have. If you know there's no way we're going to be able to overthrow this tyrant and bring about a just peace, then you probably just have to sit this one out. So I realize this isn't a just war situation, but it does have kind of funny overlap with the home intruder example I brought up which is if I said I could shoot the home intruder, one of the questions you might ask is my reasonable chance of success, <laughs> right? Because why do you have this? It's because if you go to war with someone you can't beat, you might cost not just them, but your own country, your own people, tremendous life. And it's not worth losing the life if you can't win. And so there's some interesting overlap there of just evaluating on a practical, pragmatic level. Can we do it? Or are we going to end up losing more than we could gain? So just war advocates recognize that war does a lot of damage. I mean, it's horrendous. We're seeing that, like we already said, in Ukraine right now. And so you can't be cavalier about entering a war. That's militarism. Militarism is cavalier. Just war is not. We have to be reasonably sure this is going to do more good than harm before we enter into it. Now, there's a couple other criteria, but these are used for how to conduct the war. And one of those is proportionality. In other words, if someone crosses your border and steals something, you don't drop a nuclear bomb on them, right? So you use the least amount of resistance, the least amount of force that you can to accomplish your objective. And then you avoid non-combatants. Now, you recognize in a war, unfortunately, sadly, non-combatants are going to be killed. But you do everything you can to prevent that. You never aim or target non-combatants. That's why, say, the war in Ukraine right now is getting so much criticism is because they are indiscriminately bombing hospitals. Residential areas. Yeah. It's awful. Where people live, it is awful. Now, to be fair, until recently, 
you couldn't distinguish between non-combatants and combatants. Like right now, the United States can be really sure about where it's targeting at least the vast majority of time and hit a military installation. But if you look at the history of warfare, that's a really recent invention, right? It's the funny you say that because I almost went the opposite direction, that it's harder in modern warfare to not target combatants. Now, we'll no. get into this in the questions because there's actually lots of stats around how many non-combatants are killed in war. But here's, here's where I was going with it was a lot of our weapons are so explosive and powerful that it's often difficult to limit the amount of people you destroy. So, I mean, you can bring up Hiroshima or nuclear weapons is a great example. of that. That's really hard to target. You know, read Bomber's Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell, and he walks you through how after World War II, we got a lot better at devising ordinances that get to strike more accurately. So think, how does Israel do war? Israel does war by dropping warnings on residential areas. We're going to bomb this in 15 minutes. Get out. How does Russia do war? Oh, well, yeah. they just indiscriminately bomb everything. How does the United States do war? Well, the United States can put a missile through a window that it wants to put it in on the third floor of a building. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, this will be, this will be fun. We'll talk about drone strikes. We'll love the conversations around how those go. This is going to be good. <laughs> I'm loving this. I'm glad you're so confident. <laughs> Let's keep going. Hey, you know what I'd love to hear? Let the, me guess. The Bible. The Bible. <laughs> Remember, I started there, spent about 20. You have done yours more quickly than me, so there's, oh, there's, some, merit, shock. there's some merit to your argument. Now, again, you're just convincing people of what they already believe, so a little bit easier than I have. And I do think I've been a little easier on you doing this, but you've made it 30 minutes in without really talking much about the Bible. Let's, let's well, get Because that. I was saving the best for last. <laughs> <laughs> Strategy. Strategery. 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 So John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, he meets up with soldiers, and he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. People are coming out to repent, to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And he talks to these soldiers and they say, what should we do? And he tells them, do your job ethically. He does not tell them, repent of your killing. He doesn't tell them, leave this profession. This is not what the kingdom is about. You're in the wrong place. Now we see lots of soldiers and military officials inside the New Testament. So we see the palace guard in Philippians 4. We see Cornelius, the centurions. We've talked about those in the previous section, so we don't need to belabor it much. But I do want to say this, is that nowhere in early church history or most importantly in the Bible do we see anyone telling these military officials or military soldiers, either one, that they need to leave the military. But what we do see is that sometimes Jesus does tell people that. So, for example, he tells the prostitutes that they need to leave prostitution. So it's not as if Jesus is against telling you that you need to change professions. So I think it's significant that John the Baptist, nor Jesus, tells people they need to leave the military. Yeah, I think it's a really good point because it means whatever position you take in Christian nonviolence, you have to have a way of accounting for how to do a military job or policing job and still be committed to Christian nonviolence. Because if you can't do that, you're exactly right. Someone would have told these people to quit their jobs. Well, and one more example of that is in Acts 19, you've got these magicians who come to faith and they have a book burning where they publicly burn all their magic books. So we understand that there are people who come to faith in Christ and they can't do their profession any longer and stay in the kingdom. So they are publicly told by Jesus to leave or they publicly burn the bridges. They can't go back anymore. That's never done with people in the military. Now, when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, and I realize that's where you built most of your case, and rightly so, 
I just don't see anything in the Sermon on the Mount about protecting a third party. I see a lot about personal insult or personal attack or personal abuse. And I think that I agree with you that the Christian should not be defending themselves through any sort of violent means. But it never says anything about a third party. So I guess my point is, I don't think the Sermon on the Mount ethics have a lot to say to just war. So Peter in his sword in Matthew 26, when Jesus is being arrested and Peter cuts the guy's ear off, I don't think that that is about just war. I think what he's saying is, look, Peter, God has a plan here. This is happening to fulfill the scriptures, which is right there in that passage. And he doesn't need you to interfere with what his plan is. So I don't think it speaks to just war. I think in the Romans 12, 13 debate, Romans 12, he's talking about how a person lives in their personal lives. He's talking about personal ethics. Don't take vengeance. Here's who takes vengeance, and that is the government takes vengeance. And I think the government is given that authority by God to punish wrongdoing. So there is a biblical passage where right authority and just cause and right intention is all laid out. God has given you the authority for the punishment of evildoers. And then that's repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2. So I think, you know, you said earlier, can a Christian support the death penalty? And you said, yes, you do support the death penalty, but a Christian couldn't be the one who pulls the switch. Pulls the switch. I think that I disagree. I would agree with Luther, who says that a Christian can be the hangman but he can't hang a person he knows is not guilty. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just laughing. I've now got this image in my head of a lethal injection executioner asking for the court records of the murder case that he's doing the execution on just so he can double check that he's not murdering someone wrongly. Well, he is executing someone at the authority of the state who was given that right to determine who should be punished and how they should be punished by God. So... Remember, the state there, Nero, yeah. is called the servant of God. I'm only laughing because of the Luther quote. He says, a Christian can be a hangman, but he can't hang a man he knows to be not guilty. So it does imply that you actually have some due diligence as an executioner. Well, you I can't don't know do why I find this so yeah, funny. I I'm just, funny. I, I just, I'm imagining this person, you know, making sure before I execute this guy that it's for real. So here's where I think you and I really have most of our disagreement is I think we could get really, really close to agree on most things. Where I really think that most of our disagreement, and I might be wrong, you might show me that that's different, is the relationship between the Christian and the state. Because in just war, a Christian should be involved at every level of the state. So therefore, if Christians are involved in every level of the state, then they're going to have to make decisions on behalf of the state about who to punish and how to punish, how to wage war, how to do policing. That is an authority given to the state by God, and as leaders within the state, elected officials in the United States or appointed or however you got to be involved in Nero's empire, that Christians are going to carry those out. And I think what I hear you saying is, no, Christians should not be involved in those things. But of course, in my steel man argument, I'm going to tell you about people you know, about Daniel and Joseph and Nehemiah and Mordecai and Esther, who held leadership positions in the state of pagan nations 
and you know that it was messy. You know they were involved in things they would have rather not been involved with. You know they were involved in making policy that went against God's will. They had to figure out, where do I draw the line? Like Daniel, he took the new name. He let himself get enrolled into the Babylonian Leadership Academy, but he wouldn't eat the food. And I'm sure that was complicated. I'm sure it wasn't black and white to him exactly where to draw the line. So I see Christians as people who should be involved in the state. And therefore, I think that they are going to, under God's authority, punish evil doing. They are going to use force in order to bring about a just, ordered society. And that's who we want there. Conscientious, Jesus-loving Christians making those decisions instead of abandoning the state. This is my steel man argument. <laughs> so I know this is your steel man argument. I just want to make sure that in your steel man, you aren't putting things in my mouth that I very clearly <laughs> did not say during my steel I'll man. I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> because what I never said throughout this entire thing was that Christians can't or shouldn't be involved at various levels of the state. What I explicitly said is there are lines which you may not cross in your particular job. And I would contend with you that actually on that level, you and I have a strong amount of agreement. In fact, I think there are probably jobs inside the government that even you would say, yeah, I don't know if a Christian should do a job like that. And so- Can you give me an example? I would guess that if you were talking to a Christian who said they wanted to take a job in the CIA and their primary job, because they're breaking all the laws by telling you, was to help plan and execute political assassinations, you might say, yeah, I don't know if that works with just war theory and having the right authority. Well, remember and that I, the state is the one. It's not up to each individual Christian to figure out whatever policy. It's not as if we can understand all the policies that led our government to do this or that or the other. Every Christian doesn't sit in judgment of all those policies. God gave that authority to the state, and the state has to decide. And you kind of have to go along with it unless you're really sure that this is wrong. So, no, I would not have been in the gas chambers with Hitler doing that. And maybe you think the CIA example is the equivalent of that. And it may very well be. I'm just saying that somewhere there's a line where you're accountable for it. But I think that is blurry. I think we probably do draw the line different places. But no one can walk out of this podcast saying Patrick doesn't think people should be in government because that oh, would be... We're not sure yet. We'll wait till after the questions and answers. Because that would be an absolute falsehood. And I think you can hold both these views. And again, the lines are going to be drawn in different places. And I think you actually brought up a spectacular example with the guy who's inside of the death chambers in World War II who has to answer the question. I mean, this was the debate that my boss told me to do. It. Right, I understand. <laughs> right? And so I'm saying all this to say we're actually in agreement. We are in total agreement that Christians should be inside of the government and that there are lines to be drawn and there are jobs not to be taken. So I think Christians are citizens of two kingdoms, that we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom and we're citizens of whatever kingdom we live in. For yeah. us, it is to be in the United States. Amen. And I think we have to figure out how those two loyalties work together. Amen. And I think that's where it gets really difficult. So I don't think it's about use of force or not use of force. I think the harder questions are going to deal with how those kingdoms operate. But let me just jump for a second to the practical. And I think one of the things the pacifist has to do is say, I am willing to let people die. I'm willing to let injustice rule. I am willing to let Hitler do his thing instead of intervening. And I don't think that's the loving thing to do. I think the loving thing to do is to use force to go in and to stop Hitler. I am really looking forward to the next section where you ask me that question. Justice without force is a myth. Justice without force is a myth because there are always evil people and evil people must be hindered. 
That's a quote I forgot by who. So, so <laughs> I didn't write it down. I thought I'd remember. And I didn't. Anyway, now this is all true of a Genesis 3 world. So don't give me in the kingdom fully established here in Eden or in Revelation 21 and 22. I'm talking about a Genesis 3 world. That's why I started it with that. I cannot wait for our roasting because it sounds like you've got some great questions for me already. I'm not even going to try to answer them right now. I've got some great questions for you on this nice pagan view that you've laid out for our listeners. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, yeah. one of the things I hope you're walking away with, one of the reasons why Keith and I wanted to do this is that we think it's actually important to model to people how to, in a fun, charitable way, debate about ideas and also in a charitable way, admit where you have strengths and weaknesses. Again, we started this whole thing off by saying, neither one of us has airtight arguments. This is not a clear black and white issue. Now, we're both convinced of our positions and we'll argue for those. But at the end of the day, we have a ton of agreement here. We both agree that when Jesus returns, there will be no war. There will only be peace. We both agree that any Christian involved in any form of force or violence should be self-reflective. It's not just something you do without thinking. It's a serious matter to take someone else's life into your hands. We agree on so much. We agree on the self-defense issue that Christians should not use violence to defend themselves. I, can I say I was surprised? I thought you were going to go the other way. Oh, really? You took one of my good questions out of my... Thank goodness. We believe that Jesus' kingdom is not advanced by force. So we don't think that we should pick up the sword and compel other people to be Christians by threat of violence. We both believe that we need to disentangle Jesus' kingdom from empire theology that has been popular in the United States that says that the United States is God's chosen country and whatever the United States chooses to do, then that's what's best. And if we are militaristic and go to war and involve ourselves in all these international feuds, that that's good because God's on our side. No, we don't want to do any of that. So we agree on quite a bit. Yeah, and I think both of us would say that, well, you can tell me if this is true. I would far rather have someone in your position than someone in the militaristic. Oh, absolutely. And you would far rather have someone in my position than the, the militaristic position. Than the militaristic or the- Pure pacifist. Yeah, the extreme pacifist. No, I'll say that. You're less of a pacifist than I thought you were going to argue for. <laughs> and you're actually less of a violent man than I thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so make sure to tune in for our next episode where we will do the official roasting of just war and Christian nonviolence. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop, no, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 